It's Monday, October 31st, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I used to think that at the very least, what a functional society could do was best protect its people from calamity. Now I'm beginning to think maybe it's the most we can aspire to. In the last two days, there was what's called a stampede, though probably it's better described as a human crush, where 153 people died in Seoul, South Korea. There was the incident where 132 people at least died on a bridge in India. I'm not even mentioning the car bombings in Somalia, which killed at least 100. But perhaps why I'm so shaken by what happened in Seoul is because I've lived in Seoul. I've been to Itaewon because it is an unconscionably high number, and because South Korea is an advanced nation with infrastructure, resources, and a higher per capita income than New Zealand or Japan. It's also a place with a history of horrific disasters. In 2014, a ferry sank, killing over 300. The year before I lived in South Korea, a department store collapsed, killing over 500. It's not that huge disasters are specific to South Korea, even among very developed nations, but there is more corruption and worse oversight than in many other advanced nations of the world. That is generally speaking true. So this means when 125 people die in Indonesia during a stampede at a soccer match a few months ago, or the horrifically regular occurrences of hundreds, sometimes into the thousands, dying in Saudi Arabia during stampedes for people making Hajj. We might say terribly tragic, but also these are under-resourced governments where safety protocols aren't emphasized. South Korea is not that or should not be that. Now, the U.S. has stampedes or crushing deaths, not at that Travis Scott concert in Houston. Germany had a concert stampede that killed 19 in the year 2010, but over 150. The boring task of regulation, of officials who are paid to monitor safety and take their jobs seriously, of enforceable tort law where responsible parties are on the hook. These are not rousing developments. These are not the stuff of national pride when people tick off the accomplishments of a society, but they actually are some of society's most important accomplishments. The boredom of the building code, the prioritization of safety, maybe, all right, I'll say it, the privilege of being able to prioritize safety. They're signs of a healthy culture. They're also the outgrowths of a healthy culture. And when a society fails to provide for the safety of its citizens, even if the alleyways of an old district are narrow and Halloween revelers are enthusiastic after being pent up for years, even and especially then the cries and pleas of innocent victims about to be lost do more than shock and sadden us, they set back a society. And maybe, this is what I'm thinking about these days, maybe this is all we could hope for, to put in place some rules for economic growth, equitable distribution of riches, rules for civil engagement, and once that's done, to really concentrate on mitigating harm, to work hard to make life safe. From plane crashes to disaster warning systems to the effect of global warming, We have signs and slogans all around us, flags, words like live free or die and land of the free, or in other countries, keep calm and carry on the true north, strong and brave. Maybe the best slogan and sign is days without an accident. 
the guarding against calamity as you see on the factory floor. It's not perfect if what you look to government for is a beacon or a rallying cry. But you know what? We'll live. On the show today, election deniers on ballots everywhere. How many? How many with a chance to win? And how many with a chance to win where they might plausibly ever elect a Democrat? But first, when A.J. Jacobs takes on a project, he takes it on. This quality has led him to embark on the year of living biblically. One man's humble quest to follow the Bible as literally as possible. The Puzzler, one man's quest to solve the most baffling puzzles ever. And most recently, a feature for The Guardian titled Party Like It's 1789. He doesn't use the one man's quest, but he calls it my weird enlightening month living strictly by the U.S. Constitution. Up next, A.J. Jacobs tells us about taking originalism to the next level. A.J. Jacobs has been called the human guinea pig, not by me, although kind of by me, because every time he's been on the show, which is maybe three times, I start off by saying in the passive voice that A.J. Jacobs has been called the human guinea pig. Once you do that three times, you're calling him the human guinea pig. A.J. takes on a subject, perhaps most famously or for his facial hair, insidiously, the year of living biblically. And he goes all in. He goes whole hog. He does not commit to half measures. He, as an experiment, gives his life over to a thought or a way of thinking from a time period. That was the year of living biblically. He also did an experiment where he tracked down or tried to map the entire family tree of humanity. And now he's not living biblically. He's living 18th century. For The Guardian, he has conducted a new experiment. Party like it's 1789, my weird enlightening month, living strictly by the U.S. Constitution. A.J. Jacobs, welcome to The Gist. Thank you, Mike. Delighted to be here. So my first thought, I hope you didn't have an affliction that required antibiotics. Yes, there were no leeches. I didn't do any of that, but, uh, but I considered it. I considered it. What was the impetus of this experiment? Was it the tyranny of the bad King George? he played a part well you mentioned the year of living biblically which was a book i wrote many years ago where i tried to live by the bible as literally as possible so the ten commandments but also stoning adulterers and i used very small stones so i uh, like pebbles so i didn't get thrown in jail but part of the point of that book was that uh, it's dangerous to take the words of the Bible too literally. You know, we have, we have to be flexible in our interpretation and evolve over time. It was sort of an argument against religious fundamentalism. So I'd always thought there was a parallel between how people interpret the Constitution and how they interpret the Bible. And I'd always, I'd thought of doing a a sequel to the year of living biblically, the year of living constitutionally, but I never got around to it. Uh, just had other projects. And then came this last Supreme Court term, which, as you know, it was a doozy. So there was overturning Roe v. Wade, expanding gun rights. They cut back uh, environmental regulations, et cetera, et cetera. And these decisions were made by the six conservative justices, who many of whom are originalists. And originalism, as you know, is is the idea that we should try to stick to the original meaning of the 1789 Constitution, or in the case of amendments. So I thought, well, what if 
I did the same thing. I took originalism to the extreme and uh, became the ultimate originalist to sort of show that this is a problematic way. So that's what I did. I, I got myself a musket. I had a tricorner hat, uh, tricorn hat, I realized. Uh, I, um, I wrote my tweets on parchment paper and handed them out. I put my kids in a pillory. So I just went, as you said, whole hog. And so if people just lit upon that last example and thought, okay, fun until the child abuse, it was a card. <laughs> we should note it was a cardboard pillory. Thank you. Thank you for saving me from <laughs> angry emails. Although abusing the kids is perfectly, or what we would call abusing the kids, seems perfectly in line with 1789 practices. So you'd probably be protected if you yeah. came before an originalist judge. Right. Well, I mean, and also the Bible. The Bible says that you can uh, kill your kid if they are, uh, take them to the city gates and stone them if, the, if they are, um, if they give you sass. So that's even <laughs> harder So the parallels between living biblically, living constitutionally, it's not like you chose to live by Hammurabi's code, which might be interesting, but there aren't <laughs> many people, at least in our current society, who advocate, you know, we should live by the Hammurabi code. But there are plenty of people who say, I don't know if they necessarily say they're a religious fundamentalist, but they do say say, actually, I believe the Bible was the literal word of God and we should try to live by it. And there are plenty of people, at least influential people on the federal bench, who say that where our, interpret of the con where our interpretation of the Constitution should stop is generally what they knew in 1789. But in order not to shoot fish in a barrel, a totally constitutionally protected act, what <laughs> lengths did you go to so as not to only live by the cartoon version of originalism because Antonin Scalia and others were a bit more flexible than, well, if they didn't know it in 1789, then I don't know it now. Right. Well, it's a great point because original, originalism comes in many flavors and, and the good originalists, uh, and I do think there's such a thing, uh, they say, well, you don't have to carry a musket. You can take uh, the principle and apply it to modern times. So when it talks, of, the Constitution says no unreasonable search and seizure. Uh, you don't. That's not just about the constable banging on the door. That's also about you can apply it to the internet. But my problem was I thought that they can be very a stingy when updating, like look at gay rights and and Roe v. Wade, and b they can be wildly inconsistent. So sometimes the conservatives uh, on the bench are are very broad in how they update, like, you know, the Second Amendment. You could argue that a musket, which fires three shots a minute, is a totally different animal from an AR-15, which fires 50 shots a minute at more. So uh, should we really be updating to that? But the uh, but the conservatives say yes, partly. I believe, because it aligns with their previous uh, morality and convictions. So anyway, I decided to be as strict as possible. So you could say, you could argue, it is a bit of a cartoonish uh, view of originalism. Uh, but that was kind of the point. I was going to be as strict as possible and say, if you're really going to do originalism, let's do it without any selectivity 
No cherry picking. Let's go hardcore. <laughs> right. So, and if you really get into it, and this is a parallel between the theologians that you considered when doing your Bible project, there are many gun experts or people argue about the Second Amendment who dive into, well, what were the weapons at the time? It wasn't just that the technology ended at musket. It was based on certain principles like uh, a holster pistol or a carbine. And then they would say, if a weapon has a carbine, even though it might uh, allow for more shots per minute, it still would be constitutionally protected. And there are some people who are big believers in the Second Amendment who therefore say, but a grenade launcher might not be. So it's just interesting to me that when you are dealing with such fought over material, there's probably an expert to dissect and uh, slice the whatever version of luncheon meat that Thomas Jefferson ate. Oh, yeah. And you can do that with the Bible. You can find people who will uh, justify anything with the words of the Bible. And uh, I think that it's a complicated one, the Second Amendment. I happen to love having a musket. Um, <laughs> I am not a gun guy, but uh, I was I was on the rifle team at camp. But really? I, yeah, it's weird that they had at like... Jewish camps in the 80s or yeah, 70s? I was certified had... pro-marksman by the NRA. By fact, <laughs> I don't know if it was Jewish, but it was a summer camp, yeah. I don't think they do that anymore. Yeah. Uh, but, but I bought this. It's a real 1795 musket that I bought on an antiquefirearms.com, something like that. And it is gorgeous. And I wanted to make sure, will this shoot? And I said to them, is this working? And they said, well, technically, yes, but we don't recommend it. And I said, why not? And they said, it'll blow your face up. It could. It's the, the catastrophic failure. Yes. That was the phrase. First, that they couched the it in a little bit of the euphemism. And then you're like, wait, so <laughs> in this context, what might catastrophic failure mean? Yeah, blow your face up. Um, but yeah, so it is. And I think... Um, I looked up how to load it and it takes, you know, there's like 14 steps. Like, you know, it, it's like a whole evening activity for someone like me who's not used to it. So, the, so to me, uh, one way to look at it is like, you know, the musket is like a bicycle and the AR-15 is like an 18-wheeler. And so they are two to have, say, oh, we wrote a law about bicycles and now say, well, we can, we have to apply it to 18-wheelers, that is possibly dangerous. Possibly, um, yes. You'll go out on that limb. <laughs> but tell me about practically carrying it around New York City. There are shots of you in coffee shops. Coffee, by the way, very popular since around 1688. So that's, that's uh, chronologically correct. But did you get, you got weird looks, but my first question is, was it strictly speaking legal? It is legal if it's not loaded. It is considered an antique. Uh, but once it's loaded, then uh, it is a firearm. And I tried to load it. I really did. I bought lead balls, not bullets. And I tried. It's very hard to get the antique gunpowder that I needed because they told me that the factory blew up. So that's a little takeaway. Don't work in a gunpowder factory. And did you read that on Irony Today? Where did you come across that information? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was very weird. Um, the reactions were ranging from like, you know, what the hell to that's so cool. That's a cool gun. Can I hold it to uh, 
to actually when I was in the coffee shop, it was useful because a guy in line said, you go first. Yes. I'm sure. not going to argue. <laughs> uh, now, and I realize I should mention that I realize as a white man, my experience was very different than it could have been as uh, as someone of color. Uh, and uh, I, I'm aware of that. But it was uh, it was weird. It was stressful in some ways because I was like, well, what if someone with a real gun comes? But it was also strangely exhilarating. As I said, I'm not really a gun guy, but some primal part of me was like, wow, I feel powerful, even though it wasn't loaded. Right. So it was totally crazy that I had this reaction. Yeah. You try to get an insight, like with the Bible. Uh, I don't know if with the Bible project, there were certain insights, and I'm going to get to one that maybe may have occurred within your family with this one, that I don't know if you stuck to it, but you realized that there was uh, a benefit to some of the strictures. Did that happen here? Well, first of all, I have kept so much from the Bible. It was definitely, you know, I stopped the stoning adulterers and the, yeah. and the, the beard, but things like gratitude and, and thinking about the community instead of individual rights, those have all really had a big effect on me. Uh, this one, that is a very good question. Whether I will tell you this had a big effect on me is learning about the history of the First Amendment made me so um, so much more grateful for the freedom of speech we do have. And I know it's arguably being curtailed now and from both sides, but it's still better than it was in 1789 when I couldn't believe how restrictive it was. It, blasphemy was, was illegal in many states. Under the First the, Amendment. Under the First Amendment, right. yeah, in the 1800s. Uh, and, uh, and there was... Um, a lot of sedition acts, you know, you could not say. Uh, so as part of this, I went on Twitter, which I know is a little hypocritical, but I, I would find people who said seditious things under the 1789, uh, 1790s idea of sedition. And I told them, you know, stop it. Stop it with the sedition. Don't call Biden a clown. Don't call, uh, you know, Lindsey Graham an idiot because uh, you are seditious and i got a lot of like whatever dude laughing my ass off so but it made little did I they guess know that, you had a musket and given two or three minutes of preparation <laughs> and a repair of a gunpowder factory ready to use it thank you exactly but to be fair and i sometimes struggle is it just hypocritical hypocritical picking and choosing that the originals originalists will say, oh, Second Amendment has totally evolved, rights of gay people and women totally hasn't. Those are stark examples. But look at what you just said, the First Amendment. The original writers of the Constitution allowed blasphemy laws to be on the books and anti-sedition laws to be on the books. The Alien and Sedition Acts occurred after the Constitution, written by some framers of the Constitution. But even the originalists recognize that today or by evolving standards, sedition laws are unconstitutional. So maybe that's an example that cuts against the charge of pure hypocrisy. You're right. Well, first of all, to complicate things, the original originalist, Bork, uh, who was a judge in the 80s, was actually very much more restrictive about the First Amendment. And I do see that strain sometimes. He said the First Amendment did not say you can say anything you want. It only applied to prior restraint, meaning people could publish whatever they wanted in their pamphlets. But after they published it, the government can come in and throw them in jail. That's, that's called uh, consequence culture, from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. So uh, 
Yes. A good originalist, I think, does not hew strictly to the conservative uh, legal agenda. And there are examples of this. Uh, Scalia, as you mentioned, he ruled in favor of being allowed to burn the American flag, even though he himself found that repugnant. But I would say if you look at 100 originalist decisions, uh, I'm not going to give you an exact number, but a large, large majority of them are exactly in line with yeah. pro-life, with expanding gun rights, with restricting government, with eroding the wall between uh, church and state, which are all uh, conservative uh, platform ideas. What is the eye roll to appreciation ratio in your household of your children, of your wife, to whenever A.J. Jacobs undertakes one of his experiments? Great question. I would say it varies wildly with the experiment. So when I was doing my book on, on trying to solve all the hardest puzzles in the world, that was very low eye roll rate because everyone loved puzzles in the house. But how this much did it one, implicate them? You didn't force them to live inside a Mobius strip, for instance, <laughs> or you, you didn't only talk in wordles. <laughs> well, but but I did make them go to Spain and participate in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship uh -huh. uh, and things of that nature. Uh, but we actually had a good time, despite uh, totally humiliating ourselves. Uh, but yeah, this one, for instance, and the, Bi the Bible one was the highest eye rolls because I had the beard. I had the no touching during menstruation. I had all of that. <laughs> uh, this one had some serious eye rolls in terms. I, you know, I tried to use it as an excuse to restrict my kids screen time because the First Amendment, as I said, was very restrictive. And uh, and there's a paper uh, by a Yale law professor about how um Certain type plays were banned in certain states because they were seen as too frivolous. Like, you know, so I said, no Netflix, you know, let no video games. Let's get, you know, here's a, I gave them a wooden ball and stick uh, toy to play with. And that, that elicited eye rolls. Yes. Those things are hard, by the way, to get the ball in the little cup. <laughs> it it's not easy. You think it's going to be easy. It's not easy. <laughs> and also the big hoop with the stick on the village green, lack of village greens have really curtailed that <laughs> activity. Basically, you're making them, I don't know, maybe if they wanted to live in colonial Williamsburg or did that for a semester in college, maybe they'd appreciate your efforts. Well, I'll tell you, there are advantages. Like when I was writing my tweets by fountain pen, it was quite lovely to be offline completely, no yeah. pop-up ads, no, you know, no delete uh, and no distractions. So there was, there were times when I was, I was like, well, this way of living in the 1780s, there are advantages, I would say. Well, I'll tell you the quill, the slow loading musket, they all go towards a direction of contemplation and consideration. You can't have a quick flash of anger resulting in taking someone's life with a slow loading musket. It is basically a weapon with the take a deep breath and count to 30 or maybe a minute and 30. Uh, it's baked into the use of the weapon and the limitations of technology came into play. But I think so much of our current anxiety is because the limitlessness of technology, which includes acting rather quickly on rather um, unconsidered emotions. I love that. Yeah. Well, so what have you determined about the 1787 uh, project? How bad were the bad old days? How inapplicable are they to today's days? I would say that 
some of the basic principles, of course, are still incredibly applicable. So the idea of the 14th Amendment, I love the, the idea of due process and uh, you should not be deprived of life, liberty, and property. Uh, it's just taking that as at a very broad 30,000 foot level instead of at like a three foot level. So applying it to gay marriage. Yes, it does apply to gay marriage, even though back then they would have been like, what the hell? Uh, so you know, there are people who want to get rid of the Constitution. I, I'm agnostic on that, but I do think taking a very broad, don't throw away originalism because it's okay to adhere to some level of originalism, the originalism of the big principles of life, liberty, and property. But don't get into the weeds and try to freeze time in 1789. A.J. Jacobs is author most recently of Party Like It's 1789, My Weird Enlightening Month, Living Strictly by the U.S. Constitution, that's published in The Guardian. A.J., as always, thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Always a delight. And now the spiel. There are a lot of election deniers out there in America. Hundreds are running for office and hundreds will win. This is, of course, a shameful development for the Republican Party to be overtaken by this insidious brainworm slash propaganda tactic slash loyalty oath to the cult of Trump. The top line number makes you despair. 538 reports that out of 552 Republican nominees they looked at, more than 200 fully denied the legitimacy of the 2020 election, with an additional 62 raising questions and doubts. Brookings says they can identify 345 candidates who will be on the ballot in November who've expressed election denial beliefs. The Washington Post revised its estimate. They put 299 in the paper, but then wanted you to know, don't worry, the correct number is 291. That is the count of Republican nominees who have denied or questioned the outcome of the last presidential election. However, the majority, vast majority, really, of these office seekers are members of Congress. Oh, just members of Congress. Yeah, I know. But in truth, members of Congress don't have much actual say over elections, which by the way, is one of the reasons they feel such leeway to say such nonsense about elections. But of these statewide positions that do have a say, governor, attorney general, and secretary of state, not all are elected positions in every state, not every state is voting this year, but Brookings counts 47 secretaries of state, AGs, or governors on the ballot as denying the last election. Last night on 60 Minutes, they broke it down thusly. Politicians who say the 2020 election was stolen are running for governor in 19 states, attorney general in 10, and in 12 states, election deniers are running for secretary of state, which would give them power over elections. Okay, not good. But you know, some of these candidates won't win. Uh, of course, some already have. For instance, Chuck Gray, an election denier. Not a, oh, maybe there was chicanery type, more of a Trump won in 2020 type. He will be Wyoming's next secretary of state. He is running unopposed in the general. So to assess the likelihood of victory, the how much should we worry question, 
not how much should we generally despair over the sorry state of politics as it expresses itself through denialism, but how much should be on high alert that a close election very well might get stolen, Brookings developed a system or at least generated account. They looked at polling and they found that 17 secretaries of state AGs and governors who deny the election have a high likelihood of being elected presumably by a system that's fair if those guys get elected. Another 16, they say, have a chance of winning, which they define as there are polls out there that show these candidates within 10 points of their opponent. Could be leading by nine, could be trailing by nine. Now, 538 looked at similar numbers and they broke it down. For governor, they have some pretty good odds. And they say that of Brookings, 16 have a chance. A bunch of them don't really have a chance. For instance, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania uh, real clear politics it has him at a deficit of an average of 6.7 points in the polls against Democrat Josh Shapiro. But 538 gives Mastriano only a 5% chance of winning the election. He could win, but it's quite unlikely. The same goes for Republican Lee Zeldin in New York. He trails Kathy Hochul by six or seven points in recent polls. 538 looks at the fundamentals and gives Zeldin only a 3% chance of winning. Again, he could win. Again, again, his denialism is not good, but it's unlikely my state will have an election denier in the state house come January. Another factor on the worryometer is this. Some of these officials who will win, will win in states that aren't going to elect Democrats, that haven't elected a Democrat statewide in years. So Raul Labrador, who will be Idaho's attorney general, his election denial mindset is unlikely to punish a Democrat who might be winning were it not for Raul Labrador. Same with Wyoming or Alabama, where the governor, the secretary of state, and the AG are all going to win office. They all deny the election. They all could suppress a Democrat who gets elected statewide, only no Democrat's going to get elected statewide. And here's where my analysis has a deficit. I will acknowledge it. Let's look at Kansas. So there, 538 says, Derek Schmidt, the Republican, has a 39% chance of winning the election. They list him as raising questions about the legitimacy of 2020. And normally I'd say, yeah, well, Kansas Democrat's not going to win. But she already won. Laura Kelly surprised the political world by beating Chris Kobach in the 2018 race. She's an incumbent Democrat in the red state of Kansas. Kobach is an election denier, by the way. He will safely get reelected as the state's attorney general. Other races to watch and worry about. In Indiana, Diego Morales has a good shot of being elected secretary of state. He is listed by Democracy Docket as a denier. Democracy Docket is the leading progressive media platform dedicated to providing information, opinion, and analysis about voting rights, elections, and democracies. 538 lists Morales as having accepted with reservations the results of the 2020 election. Here's what happened. Early on, he called the 2020 election a scam. Then he got the Republican nomination, walked it back a little, told the Washington Post and South Bend Tribune that Biden was legitimately elected. He, by the way, has lots of other issues. His military record has been questioned, sexual harassment ties, but he is leading a bit in the polls. Then there's Florida. Ron DeSantis is cagey on the election, but the presumptive Secretary of State, Ashley Moody, is not. She's a vocal election Denier, Wisconsin, same deal. A slate of likely winners who deny the election and will serve a state where it really matters. And then there's Arizona. Oh, Arizona. Gubernatorial candidate Kari Lake denies the 2020 election. Secretary of State Mark Fincham 
weaves fanciful tales of ballot balderdash. He did so on 60 Minutes, where he talked to Scott Pelley last night. Yuma County, we've actually had indictments and people that have pled guilty to ballot trafficking. How many ballots were involved? Mm, I don't know off the top of my head. It's four. Okay. Whether it's four or 4,000, doesn't matter. It wasn't the presidential election. It was a primary. It doesn't matter. It's a defect in the system. A minuscule defect. Two women in Yuma County pleaded guilty to collecting four ballots and dropping them in a ballot box. It's against state law to deposit a ballot that isn't yours or your family's. Fincham, a member of the Oath Keepers, is leading by four points in the last reliable poll taken in state. And in this context, a four-point margin, should have portended election night victory, does matter. In Arizona, the guardians of elections, in a state which was the tipping point of the last presidential election, will very likely be run by people who simply will not allow Democrats to win again. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST's ailing, an ail fellow well met, but he is ailing. Get well soon, Joel, senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. She's had a call for weeks. I don't even mention it. What a trooper. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening.